Sam Barlow, what is your favourite game? My favourite game is A Mind Forever Voyaging. Mr. President, are you ready to take the oath? Yeah. If you'll raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. And will to the best of my ability. Will to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Help me, God. So help me, God. So, I think my, I mean, this is all confused memories, and I'm sure I've reinvented it in my own head several times, but I, I'm pretty sure my first introduction to games would have been, I was in like this tiny primary school, um, it was so tiny that we had one girl, um, and she was the head teacher's daughter, um, so it was tiny, tiny school, and, but for some reason, like, the, the head teacher had signed up for all these schemes so we were like the trailblazers for all sorts of weird things um so we had a computer in the classroom and it was i'm guessing it was like a, a bbc or a, one of those rm nimbus it was one of those kind of you know school computer type computers um and that had like all we ever used to do with that was play games but they were they were kind of i'm guessing educational games so i remember there was like a text game where you had to escape from an uh, you had crashed on an island it was lost essentially it was like a text adventure version of lost um and i think it had like multiple solutions to how you could escape um but we'd only get like each kid would only get a slot per week when they could play it and so you'd kind of spend the time in between you getting your slot on the computer, kind of playing everything in your head, sort of planning, right, when I get my go on the computer next, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Um, and so, you know, sometimes the big kind of disappointment when that achieved nothing. And it had, um, again, I don't know if this is me misremembering, but I seem to remember, I'm pretty sure it probably had things like Granny's Garden, or maybe that was later. But, you know, that certainly I remember that kind of educational software stuff, BBC kind of stuff. And then um, we got an Amstrad CPC in the house again my parents bought that because the person in the shop told them it was the most educational um or which i think was part of the amstrad marketing was like hey this can do word processing as well as games but we got with it a box um you got a box of a hundred games i think so you know when people talk about like the app store and you know this kind of deluge of, of crap and stuff um as if it's kind of a modern concept um to the, the, the child version of myself facing a hundred Amstrad games. There was a lot of crap on there. There was a lot of filler. Um, uh, I remember we, we were banned from, there was one of the games was a fruit machine game. We were banned from playing that, I guess, in case it, again, you know, everyone gets worried now about social gambling and these kind of you know, Facebook slot machine games. But, you know, back then I was playing Amsoft Fruit Machine Simulator, which was probably a really simple, bad fruit machine simulator. Um, but we like had so little taste. I think that's my main memory of playing games as a kid. Just had so little taste or appreciation for what we were playing. We would just play anything. 
um, you know, didn't, I didn't have a favorite genre or anything. We just play any game, and we used to, you know, take our pocket money to WH Smiths and get. We'd only have like a, a pound each or something, so we'd like me and my brothers would put our money together and then just pick a random game based on what was on the shelf. And it would usually be, you know, one of those kind of um, like a Code Masters or some kind of budget game. And we'd never have heard of the games because you didn't have the internet stuff, right? So we would probably go off the box art or the screenshots and they were always lies. The screenshots were always faked or from the Amiga version or just, you know, they'd, they'd never existed anywhere other than in these screenshots. Um, and that was, this was like, I remember like the co-masters were brilliant because they'd always get David Darling to do their box quotes. So it's the guy that owns the company. Uh, you know, it would say, this is the best driving simulator ever. This is the nearest to performance car driving I've ever come uh, for his own game. Um, so, you know, so we would just play all these really bad games. And occasionally we'd play really good ones. Um, so I remember, like, loving Turrican. Before I even knew the extent to which it cloned Metroid and all that kind of stuff, that was, like, games like that sort of introduced me to the more exploratory platform game which I really dug. Um, Beast play a lot of kind of the text games. Um, used to love those. But, you know, we just play everything. Like, I'm not hugely into sport, but I'd play football games and golf games and all the sports games just because, you know, we just played games. And that was what we did. Um, so that, that, was, that was kind of my, my background. And at that point, I had, like, the vaguest of awareness of console games and like we we knew, had like one distant relation that had like a NES, and if we visited them occasionally, we'd play that a little bit, and then sometimes we'd buy like you'd we'd usually buy the games magazine that was particular to the Amstrad or whatever, um, and but occasionally we'd get like computer and video games or one of those. And you'd get all the stuff about the console games. You'd be like, ooh, these sound quite good. Um, but I had very little understanding of that. And kind of when I look back now and think of the crappy platform games I used to play and just like knowing that at that time I could have been playing, you know, Mario 3 or Mario or something or, you know, just appreciating those games, I kind of feel slightly embarrassed for myself at the time. But that was how things were. Like, like further down the line, before, before you come into the industry, like what was that like? Like, getting in the playing games like say early 90s something like that there just does seem like the industry was starting to boom again after the crash yeah I mean I was like um, once I was into my teens I became I was like a major kind of my thing was PC games but particularly like the looking glass kind of games I'm thinking that's that era um so, you know, for me, the kind of the ultimate game, it was, you know, it was the Ultra Underworlds, it was the System Shocks, it was the Thieves, um, then Deus Ex. And, you know, if you'd asked me back then, if I'd extrapolated to the future of video games, it would have been continuing that kind of immersive sim, very, you know, simulated environments with all sorts of choice and consequence. But, you know, all the kind of stuff that Warren Spector used to talk, or probably still does talk about a lot, it really does, yeah. I was, I was just talking to him for a piece for Kotaku, and yeah, more or less, he just uh, kept on that. But I think I I kind of moved away from that a little bit. That was definitely my thing. Was I used to think that this idea of almost the the kind of virtual reality, kind of the absolute virtual reality, this you know, this idea that 
you know, you, stuff like the the player character not speaking, so that you don't get you know reminded of who's playing who and who you are and stuff. This idea of kind of just dropping you in these worlds and it being as realistic as possible and having all these different bits of player choice and consequence and all that sort of stuff that at the time felt like a really cool thing. But as as time has passed, as I've thought more about experiences and as I've kind of thought about creating the experiences myself, I've become less enamored of that particular kind of viewpoint. But, um, but that was certainly my thing. And then it was, I think it was only really when it's only really kind of after, probably after I went to university and maybe around the time I was getting into the industry that I got into Nintendo and kind of went back and played all the Nintendo stuff and really got into that. And, you know, I think again, that, that kind of, PC gamer phase, I think. Um, so that would have been, I'm guessing, my teens, late teens. You know, all all those PC games were very mature in the commas. You know, they were um, aimed at uh, kind of adult audience, and the themes and the settings were all very dark and slightly goth. Um, I guess you look at them now, but that was the kind of subject matter. So I was again, I was kind of not as into the Marios and Zeldas and stuff, because to my kind of unformed mind, that stuff seemed less thematically rich and interesting. But um, yeah, then after that, I kind of got into all the Nintendo stuff and appreciated um, just the awesomeness of the, the kind of design and their approach to making games. Mm, like how, how long ago was that? Was it like, it was obviously late 90s, right? Yeah, I think so. So I think I think I had, I mean, my ability, if, I'm sure if I sat down and trying to figure this all out, it'd be far clearer to me. But um I remember I had, I had an, I bought an N sixty four when I was living in the states, and it was about the time or just before the when the Dreamcast came out in the states. So I remember I got it and had uh, Majora's Mask, and and I had Perfect Dark for it as well. And I seem to remember it was around the time that I was seeing um, the Dreamcast and videos of like um, Shenmue and stuff like that. I remember my brothers were playing Shenmue and telling me how amazing it was. So it was, it was kind of around that time. So it was tail end of the N64 was when I kind of got round to going, oh, okay. This, I mean, I remember playing, my, my brothers had a SNES. I think my brothers got a SNES when I went away to university. I remember coming back and playing bits of Zelda and stuff. And uh, I'm thinking that was kind of cool. But yeah, I didn't really start going, oh, there's something to all this Nintendo stuff until, yeah, that was, I think that was after university. And then that was when I kind of joined the industry. Ah, well, well let's uh, jump into that aspect. And, like, how did you uh, get into the industry side of things? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a win because I, like, you know, when I grew up, it was the era of the kind of the, the you know, British developers were awesome and slightly rock starish. You know, like those crappy cheap games we'd buy would have the Oliver Twins plastered all over them. And there was a little bit of that. Um, and, you know, all the magazines would have, photos of all these kind of teenage kids who are making the games and you know really built up the kind of cult personality around some of them so i kind of grew up being aware of, of game development and i had like i remember one of my birthday presents my favorite birthday presents was the maxam z80 compiler um, which would allow me to make my own proper games um, by learning machine code um, although i kind of spent more time drawing sprites and stuff so i was always interested in making games and like me and my friends would make uh, games and share them amongst each other. They're usually kind of full of awful in-jokes and just kind of ways of insulting each other. 
so I was always into that, but it never, never crossed my mind that I should or could go into the games industry. I think it was, it was partly because, like, I was brought up. Like my my dad was like first generation going to university um, in his family, and so I was kind of brought up to think: do solid academic subjects, go to university, do another solid subject there, and then get a very good job. And that's kind of you know very much that's the the kind of route that had always been kind of drilled into me as being a useful way of living my life. And so I'd never thought about the kind of creative industries or things like these interesting things like game development, stuff like that. So I went to university and then at university I discovered this was like, I think this was the first time I'd ever used the internet. It was like very early days where you had like mosaic and an image would take like five minutes to load. And, you know, it was very kind of primitive, but discovered that, um, across all the different kind of university servers, which was like the only place you could find good stuff would be on other university servers. Um, there were people who were making kind of a new generation of text adventures. So there were people using the um, tools that like Graham Nelson uh, created called Inform. And there was, um, I think, Mike Roberts' uh, tool called Tads. And they were basically tools that mimicked, um, particularly in the case of Inform, the systems that the classic uh, developers like Infocom had used and allowed you to create your own new text adventures. And because text adventures were fairly low download sizes, there was quite a, a good kind of scene in people uploading these things, downloading them, sharing them amongst each other and stuff. And that the scene at that time was really, really creative and interesting because there were a lot of people there who had kind of grown up on those classic text adventures. But now that they were kind of older, there was an element of the nostalgia for that genre but coupled with their desire to kind of do something more interesting artistically and kind of push some boundaries. Um, and the ease with which, because it's all text, you could kind of do that. So, you know, now if you think, um, you know, a, a, a kind of teenager can rock up and download Unity and start trying to make something, um, but even then they're limited as to how much content they can create themselves, even if they download it all from the asset store or whatever. Um, but still today, and, and, and certainly back then, like with a text game, you could have a grand sweeping fantasy epic or whatever, and you, know, you wouldn't have to create all that content. So it was a way for a single individual to create a game experience. Um, and so there were some really cool things happening there. So people like um, Adam Cadre, um, Andrew Plotkin were making these really interesting games. And I remember I downloaded um, a game called So Far by Andrew Plotkin, which um, I remember seeing described somewhere as if Ingmar Bergman had made Zork, something like that. And I was just like, whoa, you know, I've never heard anyone compare any video game to Ingmar Bergman. So this is interesting. So there was that level of kind of ambition and, and kind of cool stuff going on. So I kind of was part of that. I did a few games there. But again, there was like at that time, everyone who was making those games had no real illusions that they could make money from this. Um, there was a couple of people that were like, here's my plan for how text adventures can be commercial again. But they always kind of usually got kind of ignored or, or, or things came and went. Um, so even then, though, I wasn't making that connection between being really interested in that and these ideas behind about interactive storytelling and actually that being a job. Um, so then I got to the end of university and at that point I'd ended up doing maths um, 
and did quite well at that, but without any kind of intention of what I was going to do with it. So at the end of it, it's like, well, I don't want to go be an actuary or work for a consultancy firm or continue to kind of do um, academic work in mathematics or anything. That didn't really seem like anything I wanted to do. Um, and I ended up getting a job in the States because the company put on a nice dinner for us, which, you know, as a student was great when they were kind of doing the rounds. You'd go and each evening there'd be a different company giving you free booze and food to come and hear their pitch or whatever. Um, and this particular company in the States, they were kind of, they they a bit full of themselves, but they had all these kind of funky ideas about how in the future everyone would have phones that would be full of their personal data and would download all this kind of interesting stuff and people would live off their data consumption, which was all crazy at the time, but I guess um, has been proven to be true. Uh, so I went out and joined them and I was there for a bit over a year. And during that time, there was the whole big dot-com crash and ultimately I ended up coming back to the UK. And when I came back, it was kind of weird trying to get a job off of that because it was that kind of weird thing where I was no longer an inexperienced, fresh-faced graduate who could be moulded, um, but I didn't really have huge amounts of experience doing anything useful. Um, and I had a friend who at that point had got a job as a programmer for a game developer, and he said, oh, why don't you get a job in games? You could do some art because you knew that like I did a lot of art in my spare time and kind of knew how to use various packages so I think I applied to every single games company in the UK and I got a reply from two I think and uh, that led to me getting my first job which was I was hired into the art department but I was essentially working on the level team and very quickly transitioned into the design team and that was on um, a game called Serious Sam The Next Encounter which was a GameCube spin-off of the Serious Sam games and you know that title was probably my first experience of having to bite my tongue whilst a publisher chooses a title for your game that just seems like a terrible idea <laughs> if the idea of like a, a console spin-off of the Serious Sam series didn't already kind of lower your expectations giving it as generic a name as the next encounter it's like you know Oh, here's another encounter. There'll be another one along soon, but here's one for you to just enjoy in the meantime. That was a horrible name. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was it. That was and, and at that so at that point, you know, I'd I'd kind of come into that job not accidentally, but like without any clear kind of point of focus. So I think that it seems weird to me now, but back then I wasn't thinking I'm really into all this interactive narrative stuff and have all these cool ideas. And this is going to be the place that I enact that. And that's my mission is to get into games and do some really interesting story-driven things. I think at that point, it was almost kind of parallel to that. It, it, I guess, obviously, you know, the kind of games I was working on initially, there wasn't a huge amount of room for, for doing lots of clever interactive narrative stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, it was only something that kind of as I got to work on better and better titles, more interesting titles, that I was able to kind of mesh those two kind of interests and, and kind of combine them. Hmm. Um, like, com coming back then, like, towards, like, what we know now of you, and rather kind of the first game that we more or less can say you perhaps we know you from is 
Silent Hill Shattered Memories, and a lot of people look back on that game with a lot of fondness, especially considering how downhill Silent Hill got beforehand, after 4. And, like, looking back on that now, like, how, how do you see Shattered Memories now, uh, after, how long has it been? It's been six years since it came out, right? Yeah, it'd be about that, was it? Yeah, 2009 came out, it didn't um, Yeah, I mean, you know, we it's a weird one because when we finish that game, obviously you wake, when you're making a game, you're just aware of all the compromises uh, that you're making. So um, I think when we finished it, we were quite proud of it, but we knew that it, it wasn't going to be a perfect game. Um, and so I think we, was, we were surprised by the reception at both ends of the scale. So when there were people who really, really loved it, we were like, oh, wow, cool. Um, but then when there were people that really, really hated it, we were like, really? Because, you know, there was some, there was a, you know, a few kind of extreme reactions from people who felt it wasn't true to the series or, or, or what have you, which, um, and yeah, they, maybe they still have that opinion. But um, as you say, with all the other different bits and pieces and directions that the series has gone in since, um, kind of puts that in perspective. But, you know, still very proud of that game. Um, you know, people still, come and talk to me today about it and the particular bits they liked or how much it meant to them and um, you know we got to, I mean there was a I remember there was a point where we changed producers at Konami and this was kind of this was like early days of development but the game as it was was, was fairly locked in our minds and, and on paper and the producer came in and he kind of looked at the list of things we were doing and he was like so you're planning to completely overhaul how combat works in this series. Plus you're doing this giant seamless world thing. Plus you're getting rid of all the UI to make this more immersive thing. Plus you're doing all these crazy Wii features. Plus you've got this idea of the psychological profile driving it. Plus you're doing this narrative thing with the twist. And plus it's this reimagining that isn't quite a reimagining. Um, wouldn't we better off picking one of these <laughs> to focus on because you know the, the level of risk if we're going to do all these things is crazy but I, at the time we were like well no let's let's just try and do everything because maybe we won't get this opportunity again and you know again go, there's a good Warren Spector quote somewhere about he would rather have a, a huge crushing failure than have, have just kind of attempted something easy and so it kind of felt a bit like that but I think as well we'd come off um the team uh, did Silent Hill Origins, which was a game that we took on halfway through development that had a troubled history. And we essentially kind of started from scratch in some ways. There were some assets that we were able to use, but we threw out a lot and, and kind of started from scratch, but with half the time and half the money left. So with that game, we ended up purely for kind of practicality's sake, making a very traditional Silent Hill game, very much hewing to the traditional formula, um, just so that we could end up with something that worked and was polished and wasn't um, kind of an embarrassment. And so coming off of that, and, and you know, the, the kind of reception to that game was, uh, it was, it was fairly decent. The negativity was generally that, A, um, the story wasn't particularly great, which is completely fair, um, I mean, the, the concept of a prequel to Silent Hill 1 is a very strange brief anyway. But um, And, and the, the main criticism was that this genre feels stale. You know, it had Resident Evil 4, which had 
done something to take horror games in a different direction. Um, and so we knew that we needed to shake a lot of stuff up and we knew that we didn't want to shake it up in the Resident Evil 4 direction. We almost wanted to go in the opposite direction um, to be true to, to kind of Silent Hill and what we thought Silent Hill meant. So, um, yeah, so still very proud of that game. Um, it'd be really nice if someone stuck it on the eShop so more people could play it. It's kind of it's a weird thing just seeing how like social media has helped her story in terms of people talking about it and, and kind of spreading that buzz. I think if Shattered Memories launched today, you know, into a scenario where you could have that kind of awareness on social media and people could talk about it, I think it would have done much better. I think more people would have played it. Um, but as it was, it kind of, you know, released a very little fanfare. There wasn't even marketing and it was on. We at the point where so you know a lot of people had started to kind of um, move away from we, so it was it was a tricky one. Um, just basically more of a word of mouth type of thing. To... Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd love to know how many people actually ended up playing Shattered Memories because again, you know, today if people hear about it and want to go play it, it's not the easiest kind of game to track down. You know, it's physical copies. I don't think there's a huge number of physical copies out there, um, but. Uh, yeah, so I think, yes, it's a, and just the general reception now, like, you know, back then, and I think about it, we were one of the first games to really push that idea of running away from enemies. And now I think, you know, if you talk to people about horror games, they go, oh, Slender Man, Amnesia, you know, Outlast, you know, running away from enemies is almost the default now for a kind of scary psychological horror game. But back when we made Chattered Memories, that was like hugely controversial. Because whatever the genre of horror you're doing, it was kind of expected that you would be collecting a shotgun and you would have health kits and you would have ammunition to manage. You know that was that was just the done thing. So a lot of the stuff we were doing with the story and the way that the story molded itself and the things we were doing with combat and just the type of story we were telling were you know very um, different back then. And I think now would be much more um, kind of people would be more likely to get into those things and kind of get behind. There are no words to adequate to express my thanks for the great honor that you've bestowed on me. I'll do my utmost to be deserving of your trust. This is, as Senator Mathias told us, the 50th time that we the people have celebrated this historic occasion. When the first president, George Washington, placed his hand upon the Bible, he stood less than a single day's journey by horseback from raw, untamed wilderness. There were four million Americans in a union of 13 states. Today, we are 60 times as many in a union of 50 states. We've lighted the world with our inventions, gone to the aid of mankind wherever in the world. There was a cry for help, journeyed to the moon and safely returned. So much has changed, and yet we stand together as we did two centuries ago. Let's get into it. Your favorite game, A Mind Forever Voyaging. So, you said at the start of the show that you were playing a lot of educational uh, tech stuff. Um, like, But there was also, before A Mind Forever Voyaging, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like, were you playing that at the time? Um, well, the, so the interesting thing with... Um the Infocom games is so I like when I had my Amstrad I was really into text games um, but we didn't have any of the good ones I was 
playing bad text games, right? Well, I say bad. Some of them were like some of the level nine ones were pretty good. There was a game called Snowball, which was really neat. I remember playing that. Um, but to play the Infocom games, you needed a disk drive, right? And um, again, you know, people talk now about oh, my, this phone version can't play this game or whatever. But like back then, you know, you had to have the disk drive and this thing, and you know, if you want to play certain games, so you couldn't play the Infocom games. But I used to like slavishly read the reviews of them and the coverage and the walkthroughs in the magazines and just loved and, and you know at that point like the hero worship towards Infocom amongst people that were into those sort of games was just huge you know because the quality of their product was so far above their competitors even people like um, Magnetic Scrolls in the UK who had made some cool games um, but so I didn't play a lot of their games until I think it was too much later there was um, I checked the dates just naturally. So I guess I would have been in my teens and they brought out, because um, Activision bought up um, Infocom and then slowly dismantled the company. That's right, yeah. But at some point they brought out a collection which was every single Infocom game ever in these two boxes. And so I bought that um, and devoured them. And again, it's that... That was like a really hard thing. It's it's a bit like now when you kind of load up virtual consoles or when you first get MAME or something and you're just like, oh my God, choice paralysis. How do I play all these classic games? And it kind of diminishes some of them to some extent because you're gorging on them. But I was very careful to to kind of uh, play my way through them quite carefully. And so, yeah, I came to them a little bit after their release. Um, but it was, I think it was only like five years, six years after Reminder Forever Voyaging. Because I think, I think it was like 91, this collection came out. And I think Voyaging came out in 86 or 85, something like that. Yeah, I think it was 83 it came out. I might be wrong. Hang on. I'm, I'm actually, actually on the Wikipedia page now. Cheating <laughs> about... It is 85, actually. Sorry. 85, yeah. 80, I mean, the mid, 85 and 86 were insane years for crazy interactive text games and stuff because that was the same time that like Activision brought out a game called Portal which was an interactive novel uh, EA brought out a game called Amnesia which was a interactive story written by Thomas M. Dish the sci-fi writer it was a terrible game um, but very strange and ambitious in its own right um, and there was, a, there was a game called Mind Wheel uh, by the poet laureate Robert Pinsky it was like a bizarre time when and, you, and it's like a forgotten time almost where this people were trying to make these super ambitious artistic will bring in novelists and stuff to make interesting stories and make them interactive um and none of it worked really um but you know we always forget that these ambitions have kind of come and gone and, and you think of like the the evil empire of activision and ea and the kind of games they make now to think that they were kind of putting this stuff out is quite interesting so yeah so i played um so i came to a lot of those games with the expectation that they were the classics and, ha- you know, having kind of coveted them for so long and uh, got to play them all. And I don't think I knew much about A Mind for Voyaging because it, it wasn't one of their best sellers. Um, it wasn't like one of their more famous games. So the, the kind of Planetfall, Stationfall stuff was very famous. The Enchanter series about magic was very big. Their detective games like the magazines I used to read used to love those. There was a game called Suspect, which was, I think, always in their their top adventure game of all time lists and stuff. Um, 
But a mind frame of voyaging sounded really intriguing to me because the name, you know. So, how do which game do I play first? Going down this list of, of like fifty games or whatever, um, mind frame of voyaging. That sounds very different and interesting and intriguing. Um, and this, you know, the, the Inform games came with a famous problem with feelies, right? A lot of weird junk inside the box, like little artifacts from the world, or books, or documents, or postcards, and photos. And like, hitchhikers came with belly button fluff. And stuff like that, um, and uh, a mind frame of voyaging came with uh, like a mini novella or short story to introduce it, um, and introduce the central. It's not really a twist, but like the, the premise of the game is that you are playing as an AI that has been created to live in a simulated world and kind of report back. Um, to these scientists about the simulated world. So I assume there's something about, you know, they can't look into the simulated world. It's all seen through the eyes of your AI. And this novella, like if this was a game now, this would all happen in the game. Um, and you know, if this was Assassin's Creed, this would be the first three hours of the game. Um, but th- this novella has this uh, character growing up, uh, going through childhood and, um, having all these important events happen, and then I have a feeling I'm trying to, uh, without going back to it, I have a feeling it's whilst he's a child that this event happens where he's in the supermarket with his mum or something, and the voice of God comes down and says, "You are not what you think," and the scientists break into the simulated matrix world and explain to this kid that actually his reality is the simulation they've created, uh, and he's then able to to come out of the simulation and see the world through the CCTV cameras and computers and stuff of this science lab. And the premise of the game is that they've created a simulation of a, an American city to test out some this political plan that essentially Ronald Reagan, is their fictional Ronald Reagan, has come up with. And so, the, I mean, this if you actually look at it from a perspective now, it's like this game anticipates so many things. It's um, it's an open world game. You essentially can wander around this whole simulated city. Um, obviously, it's a text game, but you, know, you have the freedom to just go anywhere in the simulated city. Oh yeah. Um, you know, so before the kind of GTAs and stuff, um, it has a kind of open world approach to its progression. So unlike every other text game that existed back then, you didn't have a series of puzzles and a kind of progression of puzzles to proceed you had almost like a checklist of things to do and the game would progress when you'd done a certain number of them. So, you know, the opening of the game is fantastic. You're, you're, you explain to you who you are and you start off, I think, like seeing the world through the, the cameras and the computers of this lab. And so you can go into the database and read. There's like tons of documents for you to read. You can watch the TV and kind of get a sense for the world. And then you dive into the simulation this is like the majority of the game. So now you're walking around the simulation as if you're living in it like any other kind of text adventure. And your objectives, you're given a list of like 10 things to do that reflect the quality of life. What is it like to live in this world? So it's things like re- buy and read a newspaper, eat a meal at a restaurant, uh, visit your own apartment, find a church, speak to a, a vicar in a church or something um ride public transport see a sports game 
And these are your objectives. And so you can go about doing them in any order. You know, parts of the feelies you get is this map of the town. So um, a bit like, you know, when you get, uh, what's the last game I did this? I guess like GTA, you know, when you, you get a new GTA now, you have the big fold out map. And the first thing you do is look at that map and look for the cool thing you want to go and see and then drive to go and see that or whatever. And that's what you were doing in this game. You're looking at this map and going, cool, I'm going to explore this town and, oh, I'm going to go to the cinema and see what I can do there or whatever. And the the only real gameplay, in inverted commas, is that you have the ability to record. So the only the scientist can only see what you've seen if you record it in the simulation. So you know you just type record, and it will just record through your eyes as if you've got like built in Google Glass or whatever. Exactly. So 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 you know you have to go to a restaurant, record the experience of having a meal in this restaurant. So it's a bit like you know the the kind of um, the basket analysis that they they used to come up with the consumer price index where it's like these are the 10 foods which most people will buy and represent your average household this is like you know do these actions which represent an average american and so this is all kind of neat and interesting and a very fresh experience at the time the freedom and just the idea of this although it's sci-fi it's very kind of you know, muted sci-fi and, and this just this idea of walking around this fictional world, experiencing it, doing things like going to a restaurant. You have a wife in this game who has a career and does things and it felt at the time to a kind of teenage boy playing this very mature in a way that wasn't like, you know, chopping heads off mature, which was kind of how games would identify mature content back then. But it was like, this is like about life and stuff. Um, and society and, and it had a very strong political bent to it which I think in retrospect it is identified as its weakness it's a little bit too um, obvious with its politics but you know this was all fascinating stuff and then there's the lovely twist which is I say twist it's like introduced so you do your objectives and you have your meals and collect your newspapers and then you log out the simulation scientist says oh thank you very much this is all looking great. Hey, it looks like this political plan is going to produce a better future. This is interesting data, blah, blah, blah. Hey, feel free to mess around in the simulation. And you mess around in the simulation a little bit more. And then he says, okay, well, you've now gathered enough data that we've been able to simulate the next 10 years. So you can now jump forward 10 years within the simulation to see what life is like 10 years down the line. And as you play, they unlock future years. And, and it's like, I don't know, I think it's like about five decades you can kind of visit so there's a kind of time travel vibe but it's all wrapped up in this simulation conceit and so you jump forward 10 years and again you're given this list of things to do and you record things to show the scientists to show that life is better and there's just you start noticing little things creeping in that are a little bit unnerving things that aren't quite right and if you jump another 10 years you're starting to see fairly nasty things there's a rise of like a kind of uh, right-wing religious group. This uh, the kind of there's a kind of vibe of a police state slowly forming. And as a player, and I'm, I might be wrong, but my memory is this is never told to you. As a player, what you because you have this limited ability, like you can't talk to the scientists, you can't have any kind of nuanced conversation with them, but you can record. So as a player, you intuitively think, I want to let the scientists know about this weird dark shit that is creeping in because they all think everything's fine. 
And without being instructed to as a player, you intuitively decide to take it upon yourself to document some of the weird bad things, even though you haven't been asked to. And you start feeding that back to the scientists. And I think they, they kind of start picking up on it. So there's then this, like I say, it's a very open game. There is no objective there, but you are just exploring, looking at these different future iterations and starting to document. And then as the years go on, more and more horrendous things are happening. Um, and that is such a wonderful kind of open player-driven kind of experience. Like playing that at the time, it just felt like this, I've not played anything else like this. This is so interesting. And, you know, it, it, with the complete absence of traditional video game puzzles, um, there's just this experience that's been left, you know, left to me as the player and I'm, it's this kind of interesting way of interacting with it, this idea of the gameplay being more about exploration and observation and about recording these events. And, you know, throughout all this, there's this strand of the story. And, you know, the, if you think now, there's the, the rise of what people identify as like the daddy game, right, where we're going to tell these more interesting, emotionally engaging stories by giving you a, a, a child to look after and making bad things happen to them and, and making an attempt to create these kind of more emotionally involving situations through your character having strong emotional connections to people. You know, back in this game in 85 or whenever it was we said it came out, um, things would happen between you and your wife. So there's a point where you log into the simulation, everything's feeling pretty cool. You wander back to your apartment and your wife is there painting. I think she's a painter. And suddenly the door's smashed in and it's like a police SWAT raid because they've had some information and they brutally handle you and it's very traumatizing for you and your wife. And, you know, that kind of thing where, you know, these intense emotional things are happening to you and your loved ones within the game framework and stuff. Again, I've not played anything like that. Um, you know, that kind of material and that desire to kind of emotionally move the player by having these things happen um, just felt very fresh. That's a hell of an elevator pitch. <laughs> um, just to kind of go back then, um, to touch on obviously the main aspect of the game, which is the political aspect of it, because like it was... Re- reading, reading up on it, because I've I've not been able to get a chance to, you know, download it from the shareware places yet because I've been so waylaid in doing the show <laughs> like it seems a lot more political he- heavily driven in terms of po- uh, political aspects anyways uh, than even I expected because like it, it, it's perhaps fair to say it was one of the first games that explored politics in games as a major thing long before the likes of let's, let's, let's use as an example Kojima's anti-nuke messages in Metal Gear, and and like it explored plenty of social issues for its time as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you think where, when this game was made, this was like the height of Reaganism. So there was a very like the liberal uh, contingent in the states would have been heavily invested in politics, um, similar to to back here where you had Thatcher, and um, you know that you know that. <laughs> those leaders really um, kind of prompted quite an overt political feeling and reaction amongst them. And in fact, there was a, a subsequent um, Infocom game called Trinity, which was all about 
the Cold War arms race and nuclear power. So you know that you know is of that time where you had these these very kind of strong feelings. So I think the the level of of politics in a mind frame of voyaging was like a very overt reaction to that from Steve Moretzky who wrote it. Um, but yeah, like I say, if you, when you play the game, you have these documents, you can read the breakdown of, of, of the history of this politician. You can read the plan itself, this political plan and, and what the, the plan is in terms of tax and, you know, all the kind of, the, the, the kind of key political aspects. And it's so it's, it doesn't shy away from this. It's not, it's not a game that, um, even something like, I guess, Bioshock, the Bioshock series, where they've wrestled with some kind of political ideals. Um, it's possible to play those games, I think, and just go, oh, it's this awesome underwater city and it's really beautiful and crazy um, and and see some of that as window dressing. But I think it's, like I say, I think the, the criticism is rams down your throat a little bit. Um, certainly like the the very late cycles of the simulation where you're looking 50 years into the future the world has descended into this dystopian kind of place where they have a, a gladiatorial arena where people are murdering each other and there's a competition for world uh, country's best executioner and this uh, i'm probably making it sound a bit sillier than it is but you know it really goes to town it hold, it doesn't hold back any punches in terms of what it thinks the the kind of core message of kind of reagan his politics is in fact there's a fascinating for anyone who's interested um uh the website digital antiquarian um did a three-part series i think on this game and but as uh, alongside a kind of uh, a narration of the politics of the time and how this game relates to that and everything and that's that's all very interesting but yes and um again in terms of the history of it um uh, allegedly Moretsky himself was expecting there to be a huge um, reaction to a game being this political. His expectation was that they would release this game and the, it would cause a fuss. It would cause a stink um, because people weren't used to um, having politics in their games and, and certainly, you know, these strong liberal politics being reflected in the video game. Um, and nothing, nothing happened. You know, no one cared. No one noticed. It wasn't on the radar for anyone. Um, and he then that led him to his next game, at least this is his anecdote, his next game was The Leather Goddesses of Phobos, which was a comedy romp full of sexual uh, antics and kind of innuendo and humour, um, motivated, he says, by his desire to, well, if, I was, if no one was going to care about the politics, I was going to upset them by throwing loads of sex in the game. Um, so, yeah, it's... And again, I think if that game... If something like... I'm trying to think if there is anything like a mind for unfortunately. You know, if someone... So there's a, there's a big, um, you know, I mean, obviously in the, we've just had our elections here in the UK and there's a big feeling of concern and upset amongst liberals because we had this big swing in the election and we didn't get the result a lot of people thought we would get and we have a government um, with all the kind of austerity crisis and stuff and there's a big push we've had with the kind of right-wing stuff about immigration and Europe and things you know there's a it, it, it feels like there's a something of a kind of upswell of something needs to be done people need to kind of express themselves about the kind of political climate and in America at the moment you're seeing you know 
um, the, the kind of effort being made by the Republicans and some of the insane things that the kind of their people are saying. Oh. Um, so if you, if you, I'm trying to think if, if a game came out now that was as avert as Mind Forever Voyaging is in its opposition to a particular political stance, I think it probably it would, and maybe you know, social media is a part of this. And so you know, if you think of some of the uh, the conflicts that have arisen over the last few years in games about politics and games having a political stance, um, you know, something like a Mind Forever Voyaging could, uh, I imagine, uh, cause a bit of a fuss now. But yeah, it's it's interesting to think that a game this charged with that kind of political message, no one. It's not that they didn't care. I guess it just. I think people, the way people reacted to video games and assessed them, I guess you weren't, people just weren't used to even looking at this aspect of the video game. So, um, you know, it was the kind of subject matter or the tone of it was almost by the by. What was the actual gameplay? And here in A Mind for Voyaging, it was this light puzzle gameplay, exploratory gameplay was quite, uh, it was probably a bit of a turnoff um, at the time. I mean, I remember when I came into the kind of new generation of interactive fiction writers in the 90s, there was, there was huge discussion then about puzzle-light gameplay, the idea of games with very light puzzling, like uh, Adam Cardra's Photopia, um, games like this, and, and you know all, those, all the debates we have now about walking simulators we were having back then with text adventures um, and were probably happening amongst much smaller numbers when things like uh, Mind for Voyaging came out. Um, so yeah, it's... Yeah, it's very interesting to think of a game being this overtly political and that not really registering amongst anyone. Mm, like, like, like you said earlier, like the sales for it were not exactly the best. So maybe that 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 obviously kind of helped the kind of whole keeping it on the download side in terms of not causing a stink. Yeah, I guess if it had been a million seller, people would have been concerned that it was poisoning the minds of our youth and uh, filling their heads full of silly liberal ideas. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a game. It, it's definitely one of those games that seems to have cast a kind of longer shadow. And it, it comes up when I speak to other designers. Um, it, Like I said, when, in that kind of um, new generation of interactive fiction writers, it was always the one of the go-to examples for a video game which had an ambition and a seriousness to it um, and also this kind of this approach to integrating theme and story and mechanics in a way where the mechanics are simpler and more kind of generic rather than um, your kind of classic video game where you'll have your your story bit and then some detailed gameplay and a story bit and a detailed gameplay bit so um, I think it's, it's definitely had an influence. I mean, you know, when I was trying to think of what what is my favourite game, and for me it was this combination of how did it feel upon playing it the first time, but also, like, if I try and think of what has influenced the stuff I've done, I just keep coming back to a mind frame of voyaging and thinking that overall experience, this idea of the more exploratory gameplay, this fascinating idea of observation itself being a kind of mechanic, um, you know, that kind of layering. That I just keep coming back to my frame of voyaging as being this thing that lodged itself in my brain. Well, I saw one of the complaints was that 
the game was actually too fast to go for supposedly like how how fast did you finish it like can, like ball like within ballpark like there, there was like there was only one puzzle at the end and I was like like how that kind of had a factor in as well um I mean I don't remember it as being a short game and ah. and I and I think this this ties very much into the the problem with the classic adventure genre where friction is almost judged like you know some of those games you would get stuck and you'd be stuck for a week two weeks i mean literally i would rem- i remember playing some games and i'd get to a point where i couldn't solve the puzzle and there was no internet to go to um there were helplines but they were premium rate numbers so i couldn't call those um none of my friends might have this game or one of them would but they hadn't got to where i was you would every month get your copy of your games magazine and sometimes they would have tips and sometimes you could you would write in where I'm stuck here, help me. And then two months later, you know, you would get a response in the letters page and stuff. So, you know, the, people's memory of those games and the experience at the time of playing those games is if you bought a difficult Infocom game, and, and the thing is, Infocom games were very well designed. If, so if you bought a difficult game by, like, Magnetic Scrolls, some of their games are so unfairly difficult to solve. Like, you, you might never win them, or it would take you a year to get through right i mean uh, i love my favorite magnetic scrolls games corruption which is this game where again like subject matter you are um involved in the the kind of trading scene in london contemporary london and there's this corruption involving your business partner and your wife and people try and kill you um and it's all about insider trading yeah that game you just you had to play it again and again and again note down everything and, you know, if you came to a, a puzzle, you just, if you just missed something, just, you know, your brain just skipped over something, you just missed a detail or your brain wasn't quite in the right place, you could be stumped for weeks on these games. So I think from, for that audience, a game like for a Mind Frame of Voyaging, which didn't really have friction, you know, you can sit down and play that game. And apart from a few little quirks, you know, as long as you just sit and play it, you will win it. And, you know, there is, like say, there's, a, there's essentially a puzzle at the end, which is quite neat because it's, it's an interesting surprise to kind of suddenly, at the end, there is some sudden jeopardy and threat. And then you have to come up with a very, like, I loved this puzzle for the longest time because it's, it's slightly outside the box because you, the, the final puzzle takes place in the real world. So you've been living as, I think he's called Perry, I can't remember, maybe, I think he's called Perry. You're living as this guy, Perry, in the virtual world, and you're doing most of your stuff in the virtual world, walking around, and you can die in the virtual world. And actually, some of the later uh, versions of the simulation, horrific deaths happen to you because it's this horrendous dystopia. And then at the very end, you are in the real world, they've turned off, they're going to shut down the lab, they're going to unplug all the computers, kill the project, and you're stuck with, right, as this disembodied computer with, as the game points out to you, no limbs, how are you going to stop the bad president? And it's, it's like the kind of bad president in, um, as the Stephen King in the dead zone, you know, he's, he's kind of the evil president and he's got his kind of secret service guys with him and everything. How are you going to stop them uh, taking down the project and kind of um, bringing about this, this, this horrendous future? Um, and that's a really neat puzzle because you've got to think, right, what can I do as this AI stuck in a bunch of cameras and computers? How am I going to solve this? And that's like, that's like a really neat puzzle. So that was quite a nice change of pace at the end. But yeah, I think for me, like, if you were to sit down and play this now, you know, if you think game length and you think interesting narrative game now, um, 
you know, five to ten hours would be a lot. You know, um, some of the more kind of obvious kind of uh, out there narrative games like your Dear Esther's and um, like a few hours long. Uh, the latest one, Rapture, is I gather like five to six hours. Um, I would be surprised if a Mind Forever Voyaging came in under that. Uh, certainly, you know, I remember spending a lot of time playing this game and enjoying it. But yeah, it didn't have the friction. Um, and certainly for the audience of the time, that friction is what created the value. It's this horrendous thing. And it's, I think some of that is what led to people's being burnt out on that genre uh, and, and it's see, being seen as a kind of dead end to some people. Their memories of the adventure genre, and this extends into graphic adventures as well, that kind of concept of puzzle difficulty meaning being stumped for ages um, and, and that being a kind of value for money thing was very uh, that's a bad idea from my perspective but yeah I think I think that that would certainly be people's expectation that if you bought a text adventure back then um, and a big ambitious good one you would be kind of trying to solve these puzzles for ages it would give you a good few months of entertainment um, and so something like a mind for a voyaging yeah I imagine you could burn through it if you wanted um, and you'd probably be compelled to but um, again from a kind of modern perspective that doesn't seem like such a bad thing hmm. um, let's touch upon Steve Marzatsky, um because um he is a very politically driven guy, it's safe to say. Um, I was reading a, an interview last night, uh, as before we recorded this, um, on Eurogamer Germany, because surprisingly this isn't up as okay. far as I know, on Eurogamer we know. Um, and like this, this is admittedly from three years ago, but I'm going to read a, a direct quote in terms of, he was asked at the time, like, whether... Uh, how he sees the US now and whether there's basically I'm paraphrasing it, uh, this like whether there's any hope for the country this was after Obama was elected for the second time um, uh, this is the direct quote um, I would have been a lot more pessimistic in answering that question five years ago coming out of the Bush era basically as in whether the US will kind of become a sort of similar state down the line, like in yep. a mind for voyaging. Um, but now that Obama has been elected and re-elected, there's finally movement on gay rights, and yet the idiotic war on drugs finally seems to be running out of steam. I'm a lot more hopeful. On the other hand, Congress continues to be pretty dysfunctional. The Republican Party is under the form of complete wackos. Does that sound familiar today? And the US is an armed camp with no appetite for gun control. Um, he referenced Sandy Hook here from a few years ago, so that was very fresh in, uh, at the time. So while I'm optimistic that there, there will be a, we'll be in a better place in 2031 than a mind forever uh, voyaging postulates, it's no slam dunk. Now tell me that doesn't sound like a mind forever voyaging either three years ago or either today, because there are some aspects of it starting to creep in now. When you when you kind of hear that back, certainly for me, anyways. Yeah, no, I think I mean, yes, you always really think pieces that kind of like to point out that some of the scarier aspects of classic dystopian fiction have already embedded themselves in our lives without us even being aware of it. Um, you know, so it's uh, the weird thing with Moretsky um, uh, is that. After, if you look at his career after *A Mind Forever Voyaging*, he did. So he does *Leather Goddesses of Phobos*, which, like I say, is I imagine quite 
after the seriousness of the mind frame voyaging is um you know this sex comedy romp it's a very very good classic puzzle-based text adventure um almost like the opposite to a mind frame voyaging um there's some really good kind of puzzles in it and it flows nicely and it's and it's um i remember thinking it was funny at the time i it's got that sort of uh, kind of 60s mad magazine kind of humor. Also, that's how I think of it, that kind of humor. So it's not like the, you know, as a kind of sex comedy game, it's not crude and in your face. It's all a bit nudge nudge. Um, but after that, he um, like he di- he was a legend where he did like the um, spell casting games, like tons of those. And they were a series of text games all about this kind of nerdish, this kind of uh, adolescent Harry Potter um, constantly running into beautiful, sexy women and all sorts of shenanigans. Again, although they were kind of, and they were sold on like, I remember in the magazines at the time, you know, digitized photos of um, women in bikinis from spring break and stuff. They were kind of sold on the sex. But my memory of playing them is that like Phobos, they were a bit more, kind of innocent unfortunately whereas like leather goddess of phobos you could choose the sex of your character mm. so it was a very kind of equal opportunities um kind of sex comedy the um again my memory of the spell casting games and the um eric the unready games that they're also doing at that company you they were very much aimed at men you know it was um like i say it was digitized photos of real women um and you know you were this nerdy kind of harry potter figure but yeah the, the actual tone of them was nowhere near as salacious um, you know, there was quite a bit of warm-hearted humour and, and and kind of stuff actually. But yeah, he's, he did those games. Then he did a game called I think Superhero League of Hoboken, which was like an RPG slash adventure game, tongue in cheek. Uh, he did a game then called the I think something like Space Bar, which I think was a kind of comedy sci-fi thing, um, which he has his history of because he did Infocom's Planet Fall and Station Fall games, which were very successful games that were kind of sci-fi with a comedy edge to them you had this kind of comedy sidekick um but yeah he's not done like you say if you think how politically engaged a mind frame of voyaging is um his work since then has continued to be in the kind of comedy slapsticky stuff um, i think most recently he's kind of worked on a series of, of kind of uh, casual game kind of things um it'd be interesting to postulate on the alternate <laughs> reality had a mind forever voyaging actually had some kind of traction whether he would have made more things like that or made more kind of overtly politically charged things or, or what would happen if he turned around today and made a kind of overt, you know a, a game in that that type i'm sure i imagine eurogamer germany asked him something like that you did. Uh, they, have to go and track him down. They did actually. Like he seems certainly keen as of that Eurogamer Germany a few years ago. Like he wants to make another game with similar themes too. A Mind Forever Voyaging. I'm going to read a quote here because I have it here. Um, I hope to leave the world a little bit, a uh, little bit better. Uh, that was a bad translation there because it says a little bit better. But I hope to leave the world a little bit better than I found it. A Mind Forever Voyaging was an attempt to do that. Certainly not my only attempt, and certainly not my last. So, read into that what you will, basically. But he, he certainly seems keen to do it. So, uh, yeah, here's hoping. Um, but he was... I read somewhere as well, like, obviously he was... More, like, and, and it became, like like you say, with Phobos, it was certainly a lot more obvious. But, like, he wanted to become... But before Mind Forever Voyage, and he, 
I read somewhere that I wanted to become more than just being the funny guy for for Infocom, and and like I can get why basically because like it's one thing to do funny for a while, but then you want to do you want to break off and do something else after a while. So yeah, I think it's I think as well, and this is purely my my guess. The and this was a, this was always a frustration of mine with classic text games that um, there's there's obviously a lot of. Um, complex issues with gameplay in terms of what words you can actually understand when people type them in. But then there's also a lot of very interesting, weird stuff about, and this is applies to all games, like who, as a player, are you playing yourself? Are you playing a character? Um, are you playing uh, an audience that is directing the experience? You know, there's, there's lots of very interesting stuff about your role in a kind of interactive story. Um, and... 99% of classic text games and adventure games manage to almost sidestep this through comedy. Like the, even in more serious interactive fiction works, they get around parser issues by making jokes. And if you try and, there's almost an expectation that the parser itself is going to be a bit funny. Uh, so if you try and do something that seems reasonable but isn't, they'll come up with a funny reason why you can't. If you type something that you really shouldn't like uh you know kill my grandmother you know in a serious game in which you're not supposed to be killing grandmothers there'll be some funny joke you know nudge nudge wink wink oh some days you'd love to um but you haven't thought a way of doing it without being caught kind of thing you know it's the the tradition and you know if you think like LucasArts um 99 of their games have that kind of comedy tone and that absolutely helps in games like monkey island make the puzzles less annoying and make more sense but also you know that whole kind of LucasArts tradition of wacky objects combining wacky things together to create some wacky solution um, that I think is something that's always for me hurt that genre um, even like you know recently Grand Fandango, Grim Fandango Remastered came out and you know people think of that as being this classic um, and, it, and it is but I think of it as being a classic because of the interesting stories and characters and how it evokes things like Casablanca and all those kind of interesting aspects. When you go back and replay it and you get to the point where you have to do some wacky, silly puzzle or, or even when that interesting story is undercut by this kind of constant recourse to wacky puzzling and stuff, it's, it's kind of interesting. So I, I think as much as even just getting tired of being the funny guy, and then you, you know, and you look at the way that a mind forever voyaging tackles the problem of telling a story interactively. I think there's a, a sense as well of stepping away from the comedy as being a prop, a prop for you know how the interaction works, a prop for how the framing device works, how the idea of narrating and interacting and stuff works. So I can see that as being kind of a big motivation behind that as well. Mm. Um. So. Just to kind of start wrapping up on this side of things, then, um, like, what else did you like about *A Mind Forever Voyage* that we've not really touched on? Because the, like, there's perhaps a lot that we've not touched on that you like about it. Um, I think I've probably covered the main things. There's and there's there's probably details that I kind of forgotten. Like I was just reading up to re- refresh myself last night, and someone mentioned there's a bit where a psychologist. Um, asks you some questions and I was like is there really Christ is that, is that what, did I rip that off the shat memories is that where that came from am I interested in that as a kind of clever way of doing interactivity um, yeah I you know that I'd say there's, there's a bit um, 
the game, I mean, talking about the way, the, the kind of problems of interactivity and who you're playing and, and all these kind of questions, you know, the, one of the interesting things about Mind Free Voyaging is this concept of it being a simulation, which is kind of, it, it's a solution and it blurs the lines in a really interesting way. So you have this character, the AI, who is invested in his virtual life. So he does love his virtual wife. It is, even though he knows it's not real, it kind of is real to him. And so he is in love with his wife. And he has an entire life inside this simulation that you're not quite party to as the player. Um, he has a career as, a, I think, a novelist or a poet within this, this simulated world. Um, and at the end, um, uh, spoilers, um, the reward for the AI character is that he's returns to the simulation, um, but they've tweaked it so that it doesn't result in a dystopia. And he gets to um, live out a, a happier life with his wife and they have a son. Some of the story stuff around his son is very shocking and dramatic in, in the game. And and there's a really cool ending where they um, you, you get to act this out. So you return to the simulation and everyone's packing up because you're going on a big trip and you are going to be one of the first people to board this um, spaceship that's traveling, taking you to a new colony somewhere or something in space. So there's this weird sense of as much as the simulation is fake to the AI, it's real. And then there's this kind of weird sense of going back into the simulated world, but then the kind of unexplored mysteries of space being somehow opened up and simulated as being interesting. But it's, it acknowledges the fact that as a player, you don't love his family and there's not enough time spent with his family in the game for you to have this strong connection with them. Um, but you know that he does and it kind of acknowledges that as a player, you have this dual role of both empathizing with and inhabiting the shoes of your character, plus having the kind of more detached perspective of someone playing the game. Um, and the kind of simulation layer gives you that. And, you know, it solves a lot of the issues of like, if you die in the simulation, you just get kicked out and you can go back in again and stuff. So it, it doesn't have to deal with the consequences of, of the kind of physical threat and stuff that many games do, which I th- think sometimes creates a disconnect. So I think that's, and you know, again, you know, in terms of how, how ahead of its time this game was, look at Assassin's Creed. Um, and I'm not sure it, it works quite as well in that game, but you know, they use this ruse of the video game world being a simulation as a way of explaining away some of, the crappiness of a video game as way as a way of bounding the the situation and stuff, which is exactly what um, a mind frame of voyaging does. So you know, it's anticipates so much of that stuff. It's um, you know such an interesting uh, classic game. But yeah, that that setup of the 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 simulation as a framing, um, and like I say, just how impressive it was that they that kind of twist they got out of the way because I think as well that's the kind of acknowledgement that. Like with the, I can't remember which Assassin's Creed game it was. I think it might have been the, the pirate one. There was a, a twist where you played for three hours as a different character, as your dad or something, and then the twist was actually you playing the son or something. And that's free, yeah. And there's, there's that to create something like that as a writer, you almost have to blinker yourself to the reality that 
you're not going to be able to deliver this in such a way that it's going to be spoiled. It's it's kind of weird. So for for Infocom to kind of just you know have have this cool thing they could have played off within the game and just go actually no, this is going to be in the novella. We're just going to jump straight into it and give you this interesting layer to the whole experience without um, kind of setting that up within the game. I think was quite cool. Mm. Um, what what did you not like about I Mind Forever Forging? Um, <laughs> the code wheel. <laughs> There's that tradition back then of, of one of your feelies in your package would be some form of copy protection. And it's bloody annoying in, uh, in this game. Um, I noticed from when I have gone back to play it in subsequent years. So every time you jump into the simulation, you have to enter some numerical code that you get through playing with this code wheel um, or looking it up on the internet and looking at a grid of numbers and stuff. Uh, that is particularly annoying. Um, I mean, I think for its time, the game is slightly kind of under-implemented. You know, there are things you'd like to do or see or places you'd like to see more detail, um, which aren't there. But I don't, you know, I think in terms of, that doesn't really um, take off, take the edge off the game's ambition. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, there's very, there's very little that I don't like about that game, mainly because it's, you know, it's, it's, a lot of what's appealing about it is its ambition and the kind of simplicity of the concepts and stuff. Um, like I say, I think you know ninety percent of the, the criticism of this game now is that the politics is a little bit too strong. You know, the the politician is pure evil, and like I say, the the extent to which the world descends into this kind of dystopia um, feels a little bit um, heavy-handed. But you know, for again, for its time. Um, you know that you can forgive it. That. Um. So, interactive fiction today has come a long way since 1985. Like it's been 30 years. And if you look at interactive fiction today, it's it's certainly you know evolved quite a bit. Um, like from beyond not just text games, but you know full-on 3D stuff. Like with player choice being a very big, you know, not just a big player mechanic but more or less part of the marketing for any such game like if I had to you know pin, pinpoint games of, of this nature like obviously look at Telltale stuff like Walking Dead Wolf Among Us Game of Thrones uh, Tales of the World etc and also a game that I'm very much loving this year Life is Strange um, Until Dawn uh, Twine stuff and of course her story so like how, how, how do you see interactive fiction like today Compared to you know thirty odd years ago, with something like a mind uh, forever void. God, it's terrifying when you say it's that old. <laughs> I didn't mean yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I think there's the there's the pros and the cons, right? I think in some ways, like I say, when you look at the forgotten ambitions of that kind of era and some of the games that were coming out and things people were trying, you're like, oh, perhaps we haven't come so far after all, because I think especially with storytelling, every generational leap adds additional challenges that's made things harder for us. So, you know, there are clearly things... If we'd never left the the text medium, you know, how much further along would we be um, than we were 30 years ago? You know, because the, the challenges of how to tell a story and then you have 3D exploration and then you have the, you know, having to show things in real-time 3D and how you get your performance in the game. So now, you know, the necessity for including performance and then how does the interactivity drive that? It's um, like I'm a big fan of the company Choice of Games who make these kind of um, 
entirely entirely text driven kind of game book style interactive stories and they have a very detailed kind of stats driven system which allows for a huge amount of personalization and nuance and you know they are able to because it's text you know you can change your gender your sexuality your ethnicity a drop of a hat and the game rolls with that um you know minor details of character and relationships and stuff can be kind of dynamically rolled and blended into the linear story because the ease of which you can do that and concatenate text and and change various bits and pieces so it's interesting to see the challenges you have where a text game can have that level of personalization and nuance to it um, but obviously the costs of doing something like that so you know the all the big discussions and debates we have about gender in games now and the answer is always from the publishers well if you want to give the option of having a different gender or something then you know you're doubling the amount of work or, or whatever you know um and those kind of challenges are everywhere where you're trying to do some level of interactivity um and you know the difficulties of concatenating various cgi story sequences versus concatenating bits and pieces of text are, are kind of much more ambitious so i mean it's it feels like we've come a long way just because like the expectations for storytelling in games and, and almost you can see where we've come if you look at the crap stuff, right? So if you look at your average mindless shooter, in the olden days, it would just be a mindless shooter. Um, you know, there would, there would be like a, a description in the manual of what was happening in the story and that would be it. Now you have to have Kevin Spacey come in and you need to have an Oscar-winning screenwriter and you know the the kind of expectation for the being thematic richness and story reasons and character depth and character performances within even the most mindless game clearly that has changed clearly that has seen a huge significant shift um i guess what what's lacking is there is is the middle ground and we've lost this certainly in the last few years there's been a big loss to the middle ground where um, everyone's happy to uh, support indie titles and pull them into their platform and, and say, hey, look, there's all these cool, interesting indie things going on. And then we have the blockbusters. What it feels like we lack, which other industries have, is the kind of prestige title, right? So the movie industry has always had a desire to fund, support, and market character-driven, story-driven movies that have a kind of clear, sometimes too overt, kind of cultural value as a way of showing the world that their industry is not mindless entertainment, it's not a waste of time. Um, so, you know, I'm not talking about like the the kind of the indie movie thing, the kind of Sundance movie, because that is, again, that's like a, that's a lower budget which kind of supports itself and has its own ways of making money. Mm-hmm. But like the the kind of Oscar contender movie where actually there's production values, there's a big budget, there's lots of awesome actors in you know that kind of movie where there's a an effort to create something that shows the best of the medium to a broad audience and communicates a very um clear character driven kind of story we don't really have that in video games i don't think um we don't have we don't really have the 
an understanding of how to approach those kind of character-driven stories that don't have a big gimmick. And, and as you said, like Telltale is probably, that's the template, the nearest template we have. Although when you talk to publishers about things like this, they'll point to the fact that, well, actually, you know, these successful Telltale games are derived from some very, you know, compelling IP or have some kind of uh, scenario which drives them. You know, you're not going to have, you know, if you think of the kind of uh, Oscar fodder, you know, it's a derogatory way of looking at it, but if you think of, you know, it will be the story of someone fighting adversity and, like, the the recent kind of uh, run of... Um, historical genius things like we had the, there's a two movies there was the Stephen Hawking movie and there was the um, Codebreaker movie the Enigma movie mm. and you know, that's kind of material where people go look there's this interesting um, historical story or there's an interesting character and there's this great adversity and there's the human character and the human condition shining through that kind of story like what we how would we make a game of that there's no reason why we couldn't but you know you that kind of material is generally avoided. We still like the high-octane, high-action setting or the setting with some kind of gimmick or kind of clear kind of in. Um, you know, even in the most interesting stories I've had to pitch to publishers, it's still got to be, all the characters got to be aspirational, right? He's got to be somehow um, superhuman. Even if it's like, right, we're going to design a character who is your everyday uh Every every man American. What we're going to do is he'll wake up one day and suddenly he's got superpowers. Now he can fly around the city wisecracking, and that's awesome and aspirational because everyone wants to have superpowers. Um, you know that that for me is where we're struggling, and it's where you can see, like if you look at those classic texts, if you look at Infocom, you know they had an approach which was to kind of fill out all the genres. So they had sci-fi, they had fantasy, they had detective fiction. Um, they had a, a kind of romance. The Plundered Hearts was quite notable. It was kind of uh, written by a female author, an implementer, and was a kind of pirate romance fiction angle. Um, you know, they did a lot of these genres, and, and obviously their most popular things were the fantasy and the sci-fi games, which obviously play to that um, classic video game audience, right, of being kind of into their genre stuff. Um, but, you know, you could see at points with things like Mind Forever Voyaging, the detective fiction, um, and even bits of things like Trinity, you know, Infocom pushing to try and, um, you know, take on interesting subject matter. You see it with things like um, Magnetic Scrolls making the game Corruption, you know, set in the financial world of London. That, for me, is there's still a battle to be fought. There's still ground to be won in subject matter and the types of characters that we get to make video games about. Um, and, you know, I think it's partly what people think the market is, what the, the, the market wants. I think it's partly we know there are lots of problems to be solved if you try and tell these stories because you can't just stick a gun in their hand. You know, if you think like uh, the, the big narrative hits in video games in recent times, you have something like The Last of Us, right, which is, um, if you're being cynical, it's a video game take on the road. Yeah, it is. Yeah, right? it, it, I can 100% imagine that was the pitch almost. Hey, you guys love the road and how emotional and moving and awesome the road is. We'll make a video game of it. But whereas the road is about a guy who has, if I remember correctly, he's got one bullet. 
Um, and, and so there's the, this, this big, uh, kind of, um, thing in, in the road of like, he has the one bullet, so he's going to kill his son first if he, if, because, or he's got two bullets, but he's going to kill his son first because he doesn't want the chance for his son to be subjected to these awful post-apocalyptic horrendous things that might happen. And, you know, and if you think of like the, that's the experience of the road, our video game version of that takes this idea of there is the kind of father-child bond against the great adversity and the post-apocalyptic world, but we need to throw in tons of combat. And, you know, and so the level of combat and everything is amped up. Um, it's not enough for it to be simply post-apocalyptic. The people you're facing have to be stricken with some uh, you know, zombie deformity thing. You know, We still aren't able to tackle things that are more grounded there's still a need to video game it up a little bit and so for that for me that's where it feels like we haven't made as much progress and so when i look at like the generation of interactive fiction writers in the 90s creating things like um, adam carter's photo peer um some of the kind of interesting experiments that were happening there with narrative with the idea of playing characters that were unlikable um, you know, playing with um, kind of layers of unreliable narration, things like that. It feels like we haven't yet caught up with some of that ambition in the mainstream video game world because of some of the costs associated with it, because of some of the business conditions. Um, it feels like we're still aiming to get there. But, you know, I think things change and, and there is generally a, a kind of more progressive uh, kind of movement forward. So, fingers crossed. Mm. Um Looking back on it now, like where do you where do you see the legacy uh, a mind forever voyaging has left behind for for four games thirty years on? Oh, I think it, whether it's had a legacy as much as having um, anticipated a lot of what would come in video games. I guess it's hard to say. Like say, I you know I felt its influence on a lot of my approach is um, so we can assume that it's influenced others but yeah I think um, it's probably it's probably fair to say that it's 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 lack of commercial success probably had the opposite effect of, of having kind of held us back from some of the things that it did so well um, so yeah it'd be, it'd be interesting to look in another 30 years Christ another 30 years and see um, whether we've had any uh, you know any uh, more in mind for voyagings or, or, or whether we have works that we can hold up that have uh, that level of kind of ambition to them or, or even, you know, do we have things of that kind of scale with that kind of political agenda to them? That would be interesting to see. Freedom and incentives unleash the drive and entrepreneurial genius that are the core of human progress. We have begun to increase the rewards for work, savings and investment reduce the increase in the cost and size of government and its interference in people's lives. We must simplify our tax system, make it more fair, and bring the rates down for all who work and earn. We must think anew and move with a new boldness so every American who seeks work can find work, so the least among us shall have an equal chance to achieve the greatest things, to be heroes who heal our sick, Feed the hungry, protect peace among nations, and leave this world a better place. Honorable mentions. Um, we've gone on 
super long at length about my mind forever fighting <laughs> like super super long but honourable mentions by all means go for yeah, it yeah honourable mentions I was really close to saying Metroid Prime um, love Metroid Prime so much uh, in terms of just its tone um, how in terms of you know video games doing exploration in a 3D space and exploration based mechanics and the way the game immersed you, even using the GameCube stick to make you feel like the slight awkwardness of a robotic suit, um, just a fantastic game. I loved the it's my favourite jump in a game. The little your boots make as you jump and the way your view angles down slightly is fascinating. Um, and you know, knowing that that was like Miyamoto saying this needs to be a first-person shooter, and that's probably the only time or one of the few times we've seen what would a first-person shooter with Miyamoto-level thinking or in, or kind of input look like uh, is fantastic. Um, and the uh, to to kind of link us back to her story and narrative uh, stuff, the uh, the famous moment in that game where occasionally you would see an explosion would go off and in your visor that you're looking through, you would see a reflection of the face of your character, Samus, who is not yourself. And the game deliberately invoking that level of dissonance and distance between you and your character and and kind of, but in a certain way that for me embellished and and kind of enhanced your desire to be immersed in your sense of of kind of your involvement in it stuff was, was cool. And, um, there's a, the, the reflections in the screen in her story are one hundred percent derived and inspired from that um, in Metroid. I think uh, so. There's Metroid, uh, like I said, the Thief games. Um, so this this is all my kind of my past as someone who just loved immersive games, and so you know, Thief was hugely memorable for me. Just the sheer sense of presence uh, that that game evoked and the atmosphere um, for its time was was really really beautiful. Um, I could probably keep going on and on. Uh, I mean, Silent Hill 2, without uh, invoking the Silent Hill franchise again, uh, was a, a, a key game for me. Um, you know, in, in, despite, I think, its game mechanics. I think there's, there's lots of very clever things that that game does in its game mechanics, but um, it's the, the, it, it hews closely to the survival horror formula whilst at the same time kind of not really caring but you know it's like oh i'm gonna put some enemies in here but you can just run past them um oh we're gonna have your survival horror bosses but actually they don't work like you'd expect and you know it's um yeah so in spite of that genre i think that game succeeds and is uh, a kind of a notable point in the history of video games in terms of the type of story it was telling and the effectiveness of that story um uh if I was being fully fueled by nostalgia, um, I would have said New Zealand Story, which was one of a game I just loved so much coming up. And again, in terms of anticipate what's to come, you know, that was the first game where you could carjack uh, enemy vehicles um, and then use them against them. Uh, but also, like I say, I think that I played like the CPC version of that game, which is awful. Um, but you know that was one of the first games where I was introduced to the sheer pleasure of a really heavily exploratory platform game with secrets and mysteries and four-way scrolling and just it gave a, a real different flavour to me of kind of exploration within a video game. Um, so that's a big favourite of mine. Mm. And I'll stop with that one. Mm. 
Um, I'm going to make you uh, do a very. I'm going to force you to make a very big decision here. Um, top three games. Obviously, AMFV would be at the top. But like, how would you fill out the top three? Oh, I don't know about three. So I'd definitely throw in Metro Prime there for fun. Uh, um, oh, it, it depends on what day of the week it is. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it feels like I should I should be varied in my genres. I shouldn't like this three text games or three other games. Uh, um, unless uh, if I have Silent Hill in there as well, maybe that creates a nice package. I don't know. <laughs> don't, don't make me. T- I can't choose three. And if it goes beyond, it was hard enough to put it down to my favorite voyaging. After that, it comes a list of like fifty. I could do you a good top one hundred list. Top one hundred lists, I think, are a lot more achievable. Ah, um, uh, uh, that, that would be very definitely interesting to see. That would be a long show, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be a very long show, though. So let's not. <laughs> a dynamic economy with more citizens working and paying taxes will be our strongest tool to bring down budget deficits. But in all, an almost unbroken 50 years of deficit spending has finally brought us to a time of reckoning. We've come to a turning point, a moment for hard decisions. I have asked the cabinet and my staff a question, and now I put the same question to all of you. If not us, who? And if not now, when it must be done by all of us going forward with a program aimed at reaching a balanced budget we can then begin reducing the national debt story now that is a game that actually caught me out I'll be honest because um, I I, I more or less suckered in playing it after seeing so much great talk about it and that is a fantastic game so congratulations on the success that's had like um, what's that been like for you? Uh, It's been awesome Um, so you know the the quick background to her story is I after Shattered Memories, uh, did some other bits pieces and then worked on a big project for three years, which was a very ambitious, big budget, narrative-driven adventure game. Lots of very clever, ambitious things, lots of performance capture and all, all sorts of things. Um, but that game got cancelled and um, kind of then for a year after that was doing lots of other bits and pieces and pitches and things. But it, it kind of felt to me like, um, as I was saying, the the market for stories that were of the type I'm interested in was was rapidly diminishing or disappearing in terms of mainstream video games. Um, 
so going indie and making her story was kind of my reaction to that. It felt like there is a, there is a moment where the digital platforms, the technologies available mean I can go and make a game um, you know, without a team of 100 people. And I will go and make a game that is, you know, about a character and a story and a setting and it's in a genre that is not the kind of thing I could make if it was a publisher-funded video game. Um, and just sort of a lot of things we've been talking about, the idea of it being more exploratory, um, you know, the, the, the type of storytelling, this is a type of storytelling with lots of subtext in it, um, lots of kind of character details. I'm going to go and make that and I'm going to push it, not as far as I can, but I'm going to like take it in a direction which is doing lots of things that conventionally are not done um, and just see if there's an audience for it. Um, and, you know, if at the end of it, I release the game and it comes out and no one buys it and I've lost X amount of money, I can probably live with that. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'll have a game to show for it and some people will like it. Uh, so, you know, for it to come out and... Uh, do so well in terms of you know critically overwhelming response to it um, you know quite humbling uh, in terms of commercially you know it's paid for itself several times over now uh, continues to do quite well and just the general reception of it um, uh, what people have appreciated about it and the types of people playing it uh, like I <laughs> Just was on the plane coming back from doing a, an event in Helsinki and opened up the in-flight magazine and it was in there, you know, as app of the month or whatever. So, you know, it's reached an audience beyond a traditional game audience um, and they've liked it. You know, it's, it's resonated with them. So that's been really rewarding as well as, as well as working absolutely for gamers. So it's, for me, ideal that it's been able to go out there and work for such a broad audience um, and it's kind of proven to me that there is an interest in these kinds of experiences these kinds of stories so uh, it's all been very very positive mm, like how, how alien has it been for you to kind of open yourself up to that kind of mainstream success and not just have it be hampered or no not hampered that's a wrong word but like have it be tied to a, something like a specialist game or something someone like me or you, basically, like have it have it out there in the mainstream, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've always wanted, I've always wanted the games to be played by a, like you know, Shattered Memories was our attempt to make a horror game for a much broader audience, for a Wii audience, which you know encompassed most of the population of England, um, and well, you know, anywhere really, um, and, and not because I hate gamers or, or the gaming audience, but I well. think. There are so many expectations that you have built in if you've grown up on games um, that it's and, and so many things you just don't question and it sometimes is such an effort to challenge those expectations or move beyond them and so it can be quite refreshing to have an audience who don't have those expectations um, um, which is I think something I find quite gratifying but as well you know you, as well acknowledging that. The, the people who play traditional console games, it is quite, um, it is quite a kind of self-involved, self-referential kind of closed group of people. And so anything we can do to broaden that is awesome. Like, you know, if we have, as we tell ourselves our industry is huge because of the money it brings in, but that's because we get the hardcore gamers to pay a hundred dollars for the special edition plus $50 for the DLC, blah, blah, blah. Mm. 
you know, we do not have a medium that is as broad and as successful and as popular as television or film. You know, if, if a big show comes out, a big film comes out, that can touch a much broader range of people. It's much easier for them to access it. You know, if a big film comes out or a TV show comes out, 99% of the population can go and see that film or watch that TV show. Um, whereas if I brought out something really clever for PS4, already I'm addressing a much smaller group of people. Um, and, you know, if I meet someone on the street and tell them about the game and they love the idea of it, they have to go and spend £300 if they want to go and play it hmm. and learn how to use a controller and stuff. So it's, you know, for me, it's just finding ways. And so, you know, this is the first digital game I've made. Um, I think it's the first PC slash mobile game I've made. And so that was a big part of the experiment for me was PC and mobile are the two most open platforms. They're the two most accessible platforms. You know, I imagine that the vast majority of um, people who might be considered by me to be in the audience for a game like this have access to a phone or a tablet or a desktop computer or a laptop of some sort. Um, so, you know, trying to find ways to speak to that larger audience is fascinating. Uh, you know, things like smart television seem like a really interesting thing. There's, I think in the coming 10 years or so, it's going to be really interesting to see if we find a way to bring that traditional games market together with this kind of broader market, the market that's being addressed at the moment with apps and things, or the market that doesn't even exist yet. You know, the whole range of people who are not downloading games on the app store or whatever, but might end up having a smart TV and find their way into interactive content via that. You know, that that's something that kind of gets me excited. Mm, that's something like um, <clears throat> like app, the new Apple TV, basically something like that. There. Like yeah, I mean, it's. I think yeah, smart TVs and stuff and interactive TVs. It's it's clearly something is going to happen there at some point. At the moment, it's a very you know the market is all over the place. You know, in terms of what box you have under the TV, is it in the TV itself? What's the marketplace? You know that. I think it feels like it's a ways off that kind of settling down um, or there being any one system that kind of dominates in the way that, you know, either Apple or Android do when you kind of look at handsets and tablets. Mm. Um, I won't go into any spoilers because, like, it's it's still relatively fresh in people's minds, so I won't mention any spoilers. But I will say, like, I do love how open the game is to interpretation. Like, uh, like everyone, like, I've seen Neil Gaff, Twitter, and even once or twice on Facebook, like blew up with theories on her story, yeah. and and certainly the interpretation of the end, and I was like, was was certainly that kind of interpretation that something you really wanted to see, like you wanted to do with her story in terms of having those kind of people, like having those kind of fan theories, kind of discussed elsewhere <laughs> on the internet. It wasn't really in my mind, partly because I wasn't expecting the audience to be big enough to kind of fuel that kind of debate. Um, I, was, I was seeing it more as each person having their own personal reaction to it and that kind of being interesting rather than it, it kind of being a big discussion around it. Um, I was probably, I mean, I was probably seeing it as being slightly less ambiguous, but mainly because I'm naively because I kind of, was developing it and seeing it from that perspective. Um, but the, the kind of the ambiguity I was going for was the extent to which people's imaginations and the order in which 
they experience stuff would create a different perspective, a different nuance to it. Um, but I think most of the interpretations I've seen still contain the kind of core themes and aspects that interest me in the game. So I think that that kind of works. But yeah, it wasn't the case that I was thinking I'm going to make in the way that like I can imagine things like Lost are pitched to TV execs as this is going to generate social media chatter, right? This is going to have people questioning interpretations and things like that. Um, it's that really that wasn't really my idea. The idea for me was here is a, a scenario and a story that is going to be the, the player is going to be their curiosity is going to be fueling this. Their imagination is going to be creating the experience for them. And that's going to create an interesting personal angle on it. And it's going to be one that, you know, will have kind of shifts in their perception as they go through it. Um, but yeah, I was very much seeing it as from the individual's perspective rather than, and I, said, I think mainly I just wasn't imagining there would be enough heat, enough kind of interest around the game to fuel um, some of the kind of discussions that I've seen. So that's, I mean, that's, that has, has been essentially a pleasant surprise. Um. Vivi Selfer, she is absolutely fantastic in this. Absolutely fantastic. And um, I was just wondering, like, what what was that process like trying to go out and finding someone for for the role, like like and finding Vivi? Uh, well, the, the the huge advantage was that um, the the big project that I was talking about, that I worked on. Um, for that, the publisher funded a, a kind of large casting session for the a lot of the roles in that. Um, and Viva was someone that we met um, through that process and cast in, a, in kind of one of the key roles for that game. So I'd worked with her for about a year of kind of bits and pieces of, of uh, kind of capturing. And I think every time we'd had a session, uh, me and the other writer, we made her role even bigger because we just loved working with Viva and she was doing such great things with her character that we made the character bigger and bigger and gave her more and more scenes. Um, so when that finished, we kind of, uh, kept in touch and when I started thinking about her story she very early on was kind of in my mind as being someone that would be kind of perfect for the role because I knew I knew that we worked well together and I knew that the kind of performance that I'd be looking for where you know there'd be all this kind of subtext and I knew that Viva was very good at kind of doing very precise things with kind of her look or her hands and just but in a kind of nuanced way so it, it just felt like very early on I had this idea that Viva would be perfect for this um, and kind of reached out and said here's roughly what I'm working on does this interest you and she she kind of said yes and then slowly it dawned on her that <laughs> she was the only actor and was carrying the whole game um, but it was too late for her to back out um, of like her story as well like it's very FMV driven like um, we've not really had a lot of FMV games basically over the past what twenty odd years. Or so it's been it's been a long time, anonymous. Um, but as uh, as of this year, like it's not a big renaissance. It's only been two games, but like it seems like we're starting to see games with FMV again, like uh, her story and the new Need for Speed as well. Yeah, and Rock Band. You mustn't forget Rock Band. Uh, and Rock Band, yes, of course. I mean, I think I think you're going to see a lot more of video just because i think the cgi has got to the level where publishers if it's a game where it doesn't need to integrate like with need for speed or rock band i think you get to the point where publishers go do you know what the the way we're approaching performance capture now it's so intense it's so expensive it's so much closer to having to do a full movie shoot and in some ways it's actually more complicated why don't we just do 
a full movie shoot because there are so many production companies that do this, you know, that can do this cheaply and efficiently and know how to do this and can cast for it and everything. This is kind of a known problem. So I think you're going to see that a lot more in kind of the bigger budget stuff. Um, but I, th- I think we should see more of it in indie things. There's um, uh, the game Sibel um, that's coming out soon has lots of FMV in it because I think video is a kind of, you know, the kind of found footage Blair Witch angle on video as it being a kind of a cheap route or a cheap option for creating content that's kind of performance focused, I think should be something that ties in to the kind of the modern indie scene. Um, I think we have a different expectation now on what games can be or should be. And I think that allows us to reassess the idea of an FMV game and actually come up with things which are different and more interesting. I think, you know, that initial push of FMV games um, in the 90s that kind of died off very quickly when 3D overtook it. I think, you know, there's so much unexplored or left over that um, I think we should we should see a video renaissance because I think, you know, you think YouTube, Twitch, um, you know, the way that video is now integrated into our lives with phones. You know, if you turn on the evening news, you're not watching properly shot broadcast footage anymore. You're just seeing cell phone footage from what, you know, it's, it seems like it's such a part of the texture of our lives now that naturally I think we're going to see more games reacting to that and incorporating it into themselves. Mm. Um, the minimalist aspect of her story, like, it was certainly a very interesting um, way to go about it. And now that I, we've talked about AMFE as your favourite game, like, was... Was that certainly an influence on having her story being as minimalist as it was, or was that just accidental or or even non-influential at all? I th- I mean I think absolutely I think if I when I was saying about you know for me FMV uh, sorry AMFV as an influence is something I'd be more and more aware of and, and you know when I think back to the games that have influenced me I keep coming back to that being a key one and I think that sense at the time of that having very light mechanics. Um, but the content itself being quite rich and obviously, you know, those text games very much exist in your imagination and use your imagination to evoke what's going on. I think that's something I've always kind of carried with me as being um, a kind of useful angle on games. So, you know, I mean, and like I was saying, her story was a kind of attempt to go off in the opposite direction and do a lot of things that don't make sense on a kind of large published console game. So, you know, it was a game that as much as I possibly could was about evoking the imagination, creating gaps and spaces for your imagination to fill things in. And as well, it was a very much a reaction against what had become almost an inbuilt design instinct in me, which was to have lots of things to do and to embellish. Um, And, you know, you see it badly in, in the kind of Ubisoft template, which is to, have your core game mechanic and then tons of other stuff. And uh, I've seen them quoted on this where they say, the other stuff doesn't have to be that good as long as there's lots of it and there's lots to choose from, right? So it's just this idea that a, uh, a, a kind of full package, a full video game package will just have tons of stuff to do. Um, and you need to just fill up all the, you know, give the player lots of little things to do and time wasters and extra things to do. So I think I was very conscious of making her story think i would keep thinking of extra stuff i could put in um and you know i've seen a few people say oh it'd be nice if we could have done these other things and you know throughout development 
I was constantly saying to myself, oh, I should put in, you can get these things and access these documents and do these things and pull up these other bits of evidence, blah, blah, blah. And at every point, I would stop myself and go, no, what the magic that I kind of fell in love with and why I started developing her story was this aspect of the search being about the language and using the woman's words as a way of navigating her own testimony. And that, for me, was the magic of it. And, and having the pacing such that there's quite a good frequent interaction. There's a lot of back and forth. The kind of the clips are quite short. So it almost feels like you're involved in a dialogue with the woman at points. So it was, that, for me, was the magic of it. And giving myself the per- permission to, or, or having the confidence almost to say, no, I'm not going to put anything else in. I'm just going to focus on this because I think this is the core of the experience. And if I do put other stuff in, it's going to distract and dilute from that. Um, so I think, you know, that definitely is, is probably the, the most extreme uh, push I've had for something, not necessarily, min- I suppose it's minimalism, but um, a singular focus of, of kind of being comfortable with not having to have lots and lots of stuff in there to do, which, which I guess you probably could link all the way back to Wide Forever Voyaging, where they must have had, I imagine, an amount of internal pressure or self-imposed pressure to go, why don't we put more puzzly things in? Because, you know, I think at that point, it was probably the only game Infocom had made that wasn't full of puzzles. Like, even to the point where the box art on an Infocom game would list... Uh, game name the genre you know mystery sci-fi whatever and then difficulty of puzzles you know it was such a part of your expectation of an infocom game and their brand so i can imagine that that was there was an element of them having to stick to their guns to kind of deliver on that concept Hmm. um like for your next game like do you see yourself kind of maintaining that kind of minimalism um probably i'm the the so I've, a lot of my plans for what I would do next were kind of very pragmatic. So most of them were essentially, if her story does okay or doesn't sell great, then my next game will be this. And it was, you know, doing something more recognizable or more back to, um, hey, if you enjoyed Silent Hill Shadow Memories, you will directly enjoy this kind of thing. Um, so having now that her story has done so well and there has been such an appetite for it and there is an audience to build on, I very much want... To so I don't want to repeat the trick because I think the, I've had some requests where people have said loved her story, give me another story in that structure, and I would eat it up. But um, as much as I can see that potentially working, it's I can't get as excited about that idea. So for me, it's about delivering something that's going to not piss off anyone who enjoyed her story. So I don't want to create something that's going to um, surprise or, or be that. Like in terms of, for me, the essence of her story is that there is an ease of access to it. There's an intuitiveness um, that makes it very kind of straightforward for people to come in and play, but that reveals an amount of richness. It heavily is driven by the imagination, um, which I think is something that a lot of kind of uh, conventional video games lack to some extent. So that's a key aspect for me. And then the type of story it's telling is types of characters and a setting that is not your usual video game thing. So, you know, a contemporary crime story with a bit of kind of slightly poetic stuff is fairly mainstream in TV or film or kind of book publishing. 
it, that isn't a story you would normally be allowed to tell if it was a, a kind of conventional video game. So those are the three things I want to kind of keep close to me and, and kind of build on for some kind of follow-up. Um, the bit that I'm most, the bit that um, I'm allowing myself the most kind of mulling over is where I go with the interface because I think there's, in terms of limiting the audience, the fact that her story revolves so closely around the use of language um, means that uh, it, it requires a keyboard and it doesn't localize particularly easily. Uh, we are actually attempting to do a, a, a localization attempt for one language initially just to see uh, how difficult that is. Um, so there's a this part of me that's like, oh, I should definitely do something that isn't keyboard slash language driven next time because then I can sell it to the world and then I could be on um, an Apple TV or on a console if I so desired or in VR. You know, VR is very interesting. Where do you go VR? What could we do on VR? But, you know, and there was a bit of interest to do a VR version of her story, but obviously using a keyboard means that unless you're a touch typer, it's going to be quite a shitty experience. Um, so, but at the same time, when I look at her story and the fact that it's had this success, which has kind of surprised me, um, when I look back at it and I think what works about her story for all these people that have enjoyed it, there's so much interesting stuff and so much richness in the use of language um, and in kind of simplifying it to essentially a word search that's eliminated a lot of the shittiness about traditional text parsers. So it's a very rich interesting angle um is the use of words and language um and i guess i'm slightly not scared but slightly nervous that if i was to abandon that and come up with something else it wouldn't be as rich um and as interesting and as accessible to people as the use of kind of the search words in her story was so um but at the moment i'm not feeling a huge amount of pressure to kind of rush that decision. So I, I want to make sure that before I kind of get stuck into whatever I do to follow up her story, that it's, um, that I can, you know, I mean, when I, I, I waited until I had the right idea with her story, I just kind of allowed myself to sit and think and mull around ideas until it just kind of popped into my head. And I thought, right, I genuinely love that idea. Um, so I'm kind of going to give myself the space to, have that idea um and yeah the, the, as much as i'm aware of thinking of those ideas there's, there's the question of how the interface works um but in, in terms of what you're saying minimalism yeah. um that i guess would come down to yeah the, the kind of ease of access um and not throwing in all sorts of spurious things so i think i it wants to still be something that people can you know, download and start playing and think, what is this? This is strange. What's going on? And then very quickly kind of get the hang of it and then kind of find that there's a, a deeper experience waiting for them beyond that. Hmm. So so basically at this point, you're still just basically exploring ideas for what comes next. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's um, so, so much work involved in once the, you know, you sh- ship a game digitally and supporting that and, you know, speaking to people about it and um, I'm still trying to get the first patch release done. I haven't had enough time to sit down and kind of just fix the, the few kind of bugs that we have and kind of get that done. So I'm kind of thinking that by the end of the year, I've got that out the way. I've got some other little bits and pieces I'm doing with some other people that 
hopefully you know, by the end of the year there'll be a, a much kind of a clearer headspace for me to then kind of go right that's her story that was last year now let's kind of figure out what's next um i mean her, a lot of her story was initially developed with me sat in my garden in the sun um i think it was april of 2014 um and reading loads of books about police interviews and crime and similar stories and just lots of kind of interesting research stuff and just giving myself the space to kind of read all that stuff, soak it up, react to it. Um, and that's kind of how her story came about. So um, timing's probably slightly off. I'll probably be, it'll probably be in the midst of an English winter which won't be quite as conducive as to, to kind of chilled out reflection, but um, we'll see. Um, so one last thing on, on her story, then, like, or or what comes down in the future, and like, do do you ever want to see yourself making a game? And just to kind of go back on the core subject, like, do you ever want to see yourself like making a game based on similar themes that uh, a mind forever voyaging had? Because like like we mentioned how. Uh, Mertzky, like, had a lot of Reagan influence in that game and how his kind of uh, political aspects of it, like, his politics of it, influenced that game. Because, like, he said himself that uh, his, um, his kind of politics were also, was also kind of influenced from a kind of quote-unquote anti-Nixon sentiment. So, like, do you, do you kind of see yourself making that sort of game for yourself in a, in a way inspired no, by AMFE. No, I think it's I think that's definitely um the aspect that uh I look at and think that's not something I could do. I I find that I can often be very motivated kind of upfront by political ideas or angles. So, you know, like with her story, I was looking a lot of um, footage of police interviews and interrogations and there were certain cases that came up that were particularly kind of relevant um, and then looking into just the, the idea of female murderers um, they are like one one tenth of murders are committed by women um, so it's disproportionately small um, so then the, when a woman does commit murder the question um it, it, it can often become a more uh, kind of uh, dramatic and kind of interesting thing. It can get blown up by the media. Um, and then it exposes a lot of kind of prejudices and um, pieces of thinking about how women should or shouldn't behave. Um, and then you, you kind of look at how these kind of female murderers are treated and tried versus the male counterparts. There was a lot of material there that was very interesting to me that that essentially is quite political um, in terms of how the criminal justice system works, uh, how, what part gender has to play in that. But for me, once I get stuck into something, I very rapidly drop down to the kind of character level and it becomes much more interesting in the characters and their personal stories. And that was kind of how her story worked for me. And it very rapidly... Um, all of my concerns were much more from the character's perspective and the, in, <laughs> her story um, and, and kind of how that influenced it. And I tend to then end up in somewhere that it becomes slightly um, hyper-real or slightly poetic or something in terms of the kind of the, the thematics and the symbols and stuff. So I, I don't know if I could... I mean, like, the, 
the big game I was making after Shattered Memories, that had that's probably the nearest I've got to political themes dominating the game. But then that was more about the politics of the human race as a, as a whole. So it, it came down to, again, quite a personal thing of how each and every one of us struggles with um, kind of our, our role in the universe. So I think it's, it's not really a, a kind of something where I have a level of comfort is, is making something with the ability to kind of overtly address political issues. And in fact, the, the rough idea I have for the follow-up to her story is probably even more, the material is heavily politically charged. Um, but already I can sense myself moving away from that to how does that work for the individuals involved? What is The bit that's interesting to me is the relationships between the characters in this particular bit of subject matter. Um, so yeah, I think I'll... I'm happy to leave this sort of thing up to the, the Moretzkis of the world to, to go out and make the more overt um, kind of political statements. Do you want me to play something? I'm not the world's greatest guitar player. Okay. Probably needs tuning. Every victory for human freedom 
will be a victory for world peace. So we go forward today a nation still mighty in its youth and powerful in its purpose. With our alliances strengthened, with our economy leading the world to a new age of economic expansion, we look to a future rich in possibilities. And all of this is because we worked and acted together, not as members of political parties, but as Americans. My friends, we, we live in a world that's lit by lightning. So much is changing and will change, but so much endures and transcends time. History is a, a ribbon, always unfurling. History is a journey. And as we continue our journey, we think of those who traveled before us. We stand again at the steps of this symbol of our democracy, or we would have been standing at the steps if it hadn't gotten so cold. Now we're standing inside this symbol of our democracy. Well, if, if people listening to this and they haven't already uh, played her story, they should definitely go and check it out. Uh, it's on iPhone, iPad, PC, and Mac. You can get it on Steam, Humble, good old games. You can get it on the App Store. You can go to the website, which is www.herstorygame.com. Find out about the game there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am Mr. Sam Barlow on Twitter. Um, and that's it. And, uh, just you know, hold tight for whatever comes next, which and however long it takes me to, to complete that. If I don't fall into the kind of indie trap of uh, the next game, the scale, you know, ballooning out of all control, because I'll be so cocky and full of uh, the success of her story. I'm hoping it won't. The difficult second album, so to speak. Yeah, it's like Mike Mithel says, you know, when people talk about his difficult second album, it's in effect his 15th or 16th game. Because, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the kind of the weird thing of, you know, I thought that generally as much as I exist as a, an idea in other people's heads, that that would be associated with shattered memories. But um, because that game doesn't have my name on the box, uh, and it's a whole different world when it's, an indie game and again just like the way social media works now where you know that game is associated with me and people can directly then hook up on Twitter and stuff it's very different um, so yeah that you know her story has established itself for most people in the world as being the first time they've heard of me or um, my games so yeah it will be yeah it's, it's less about difficult second album and more just I don't want to squander the kind of audience that I found with her story. A lonely president paces the darkened halls and powers, ponders his struggle to preserve the Union. The men of the Alamo call out encouragement to each other. A settler pushes west and sings a song, and the song echoes out forever and fills the unknowing air. It is the American sound. It is hopeful, big-hearted, idealistic, daring, decent, and fair. That's our heritage. That's our song. We sing it still. For all our problems, our differences, we are together as of old. We raise our voices to the God who is the author of this most tender music. And may he continue to hold us close as we fill the world with our sand, sound in unity, affection, and love. One people, under God, dedicated to the dream of freedom that he has placed in the human heart, called upon now to pass that dream on to a waiting and a hopeful world. God bless you, and may God bless America. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to my favourite game, Season 3. My thanks to the 10 people who have joined me this past season to talk about their favourite game. Jordan Erica Weber on The Sims 2. Dan Pierce on Clonoa 2, Lunatea's Vale. Harriet Jones on Fallout 3. Sarah Wellick on Persona 3. Jake Tucker on XCOM Enemy Unknown. Carly Vellucci on Silent Hill 2. Tom Francis on Deus Ex. Dan Cito on Final Fantasy 7. Robin Honecky on Katamari Damase and Sam Barlow on Mind Forever Voyaging. My favourite game will return in the new year with brand new episodes. Until then, stay tuned for news on those new episodes by following at MFG Podcast on Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Johnny Cohn and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash myfavouritegamepod. But we're not quite done with 2015 just yet. In two weeks... We have a special episode of My Favourite Game coming your way. My Favourite Game of 2015. We'll have more details for you on Twitter and Facebook and on myfavouritegame.net soon. But even then, there's still more to come. Next week, Christmas Eve, the best of Season 3. And here's a taste of what to expect next week. Have a fantastic Christmas. Have a fantastic new year. We'll see you in 2016. Bye-bye. I was more open to just going into a shop and looking at a, a game and be like, you know what, I'll give that a shot. I don't, I'm not going to, I don't necessarily care too much about the reviews or whatever. I'm just going to, the box art looks nice. It sounds kind of cool. I'll give it a shot. There was, it wasn't just, here you are, fighting some monsters have at it. There was a backstory and infrastructure and politics and, I don't know, drama. It was just amazing. I love the way game designers take a thing from the real world and turn it into a game system. And dating and romance is something that I'm interested in in an academic sense. And I love the way that Kitty Powers Matchmaker has interpreted it into, into video game mechanics. Like they're just different parts of my personality coming through in, in different ways that are hopefully tonally consistent in their own individual rights. So to me, it just feels like different aspects of my personality, but I can completely understand why it would seem like a big tonal shift. In the end, it turned out that, you know, Liara is my space wife forever because I romanced her in one and then I ended up romancing her in three. And Garrus is my space bro because we're best friends. And I totally support him and Tali as a couple. Thumbs up. She's a wingman. My femship's a wingman. It's, it's nice to play as a professional, doing a professional thing. So Rainbow Six is nice because this is just, like, normal stuff for this guy. It's like, hey, cool, so I need you to... Uh, I need you to raid this embassy and bring these guys out alive. And they're like, yeah, cool, I got that. The feel of hitting someone in Deus Ex is so bad. It's just like the police baton makes a kind of woo noise when you attack with it. And uh, when it hits someone, it makes this like terrible kind of clack that doesn't feel at all impactful. And then maybe they sort of go, ooh, and fall over, or maybe they don't. I mean, I've had many debates about Kanji in 4, and I'm sure whoever you have on to talk about Persona 4 probably talks about it, but whether Kanji actually comes to terms with sexuality isn't really addressed. <laughs> a Silent Hill game, for me, requires, you know, 
a photoreal look. It requires uh, performances and an emphasis on that kind of aspect of storytelling that is of the highest quality. There will always be a few people that just go back. They'll go back to that part of the Louvre or, you know, the National Gallery, or they'll, they'll go back to Greece to that one place or to these dunes, you know. They'll go back to that place and they'll, they'll just be there because it, for them it's meaningful. And Journey is a place like that for me now. My favorite game. 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 My favorite game is. That's my favorite game, the best of season three. Next Thursday, Christmas Eve. Have a great one, folks. Bye bye.